down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 532 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, October the 15th. It's hump day for the month, man. We are halfway through the month. I keep telling you, winter's coming. Be prepared. Uh, today we're going to do Call-In Friday, because it is Friday. That means your calls to uh, 866-65-THINK will be on the air. I think i got about 11 of them uh, screened and queued up. We're up into, like... The beginning of last week with the last calls, and most of these calls are from three weeks ago. So I am building a backlog on this stuff again. I keep threatening to do two shows in a week of your calls. I might do that next week just to try to kind of catch up. But uh, calling in still is your best way to get your question on the air. It's better than email. Uh, email's great, but I get so much, there's less calls. So less calls equals greater chance to be on the air. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, Backyard Food Production. One of my favorite sponsors, honestly. Love talking to Marjorie down there south of Austin about the stuff that she's doing. You know, they put that all together in a DVD that will help you turn your backyard into a food production machine. No matter where you live, whether you have a half an acre in suburbia or a half a thousand acres somewhere out in the country, you can use the techniques in Marjorie's DVD. So check out the DVD from Backyard Food Production. Uh, next up, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle is a great place for anything you would need for your prepping needs. They're kind of a one-stop shop for all the stuff that you might need to find for uh, your prepping resources. They're also a great supporter of the show. They have a wonderful program called their Discount Buyers Club. That Discount Buyers Club costs $29 one time, and you get discounts on everything they sell from that point forward for the rest of your life. So it's a good deal. But if you join our Members Brigade, they're such a strong supporter of the show that they give that to you for free. So MSB members get Save Castle's $29 lifetime membership for free. That tells you how supportive they are of the work that we're doing here. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys to check out our gear shop and check out our Trekkers. Uh, they will probably stop being available for pre-order on the 18th. That is Monday. It means you got this weekend and Monday to get your orders in. I am trying to talk Sis Wolf into extending that to the end of next week. Uh, they are selling very well, uh, but right now there's under 100 ordered. I mean, if we doubled it, there's maybe 200 of these things going to be in existence. So get one while you can. We're doing this once. One, they're gone. They're gone. Trekkers are the really great Swiss Army knife. Uh, these are engraved with the TSP logo in the date 2010. It will be the only time we do the Trekkers uh, this way. So check that out and uh, check the gear shop out in general. I also want to let you know, um, I set up a site, oh God, almost a year ago that I never did anything with called SaveOurSkills.com that was going to focus on all the skill level stuff. 
And about two months ago, I ran through a whole bunch of applicants to find a partner to run that site for me, uh, to give them the majority of any revenue that came out of it, and let them run the site and be an advisor and help promote it. That's, again, that site is called SaveOurSkills.com. Um, the guy that I selected to do the work is a gentleman named Nick Ledoux, and uh, he is doing a badass job on the site. It is really turned around. It looks great. We've got fresh new material on there every day. He's even doing some podcasting over there. So check out SaveOurSkills.com. We're trying to expand this survival podcast in maybe kind of a bigger tent format. Uh, make sure that everything that we're putting out as part of a community is not just dependent on me. Interesting question we're going to end with today that kind of brings us back to that. But do check it out again. SaveOurSkills.com uh, or as we call it internally SOS. <laughs> all right, uh, last but not least, consider joining the Members Brigade. Get exclusive content, free stuff, all kinds of good stuff. Support the show, 20 cents an episode, done. Let's go ahead and get right into your calls today. Let's take that first call now. Hey, Jack, this is Bill from New Jersey. I just wanted to pass along a little uh, little um, comment and uh, something about your store, which you eat, eat with your store. Um, there's recently a recall on uh, Similac. Formula. Now we have a lot of it in stock, uh, in supply, but it turned out that everything we had was in the same lot in, in the recall. So basically it turned out that we have no food for my baby. So maybe just a little, uh, diversification of what you store and what you eat, maybe different brands, different lot numbers, things like that. I know you go through rotation, but certain items like, uh, long-term storage for, uh, baby formula, things like that. If you just have the one brand, the one kind, it might be, a uh, might get involved in sort of a recall like this. So just something that you might want to pass on a suggestion to the rest of the people. Bye-bye. You know, that's a great point. It's something I really should have talked about before. I remember um, one, of, you know, one of the things we store a lot of is peanut butter just because it's a good protein source. It tastes good. It lasts for damn near ever, and it's, uh, it's good stuff, right? And uh, a few years ago, maybe it wasn't even a few years ago, but a while ago we had, does everybody remember the Peter Pan recall, right? And my wife is, like, spoiled with peanut butter. She's like a little kid. She wants Peter Pan and nothing else. I, I really don't care. I'll eat Jif. I'll eat, you know, whatever. I like Chunky. She likes Creamy. So what happened was um, I had all the peanut butter that I'd say really for me that was Chunky that was, uh, I think most of it was from Jif. And uh, it was just fine. You know, there was no problems with it. And um, all the Creamy stuff was Peter Pan because that's what she's... Uh, that's what she's kind of addicted to, and uh, we had to throw it all away. It all started with the numbers that they they put out that said, "Hey, if you have Peter Pan with the, with this on it, I think it was maybe like two jars out of the whole stash that was uh, not part of the recall number run because it was the older stuff." And you know, but then she had to wait for Peter Pan to come back. Now this wouldn't help because she's like. Weird with this, man. She doesn't, you know, like, I don't want Jif, like a little kid or something, you know. She was just waiting for Peter Pan to come back. I can't tell the difference between this stuff. But, you know, you bring up a good point about having different varieties or different brands of the same thing and maybe at least having different um, uh, production runs. One of the things I always tell people to do, though, and I don't know if this is really related at all, but, like, when you go to a big discount store like Sam's or Costco, and they have a great big pallet of stuff, and it's sitting on top of another pallet of stuff, and the one on the bottom's opened, but on the bottom, get your stuff out of the one on the bottom. Uh, I went around one day in Costco just to um, find out how 
much this of a difference this would make. The average expiration date on long-term storable items was at least six months ahead just by going one level down in the stack. Because obviously they want the they don't want you to distort doesn't like this when you're down there pulling one out of the bottom. But hey, um, I'm buying for long term storage, so that's important to me. It reminds me of when I was a kid and I worked in a grocery store and I'd stack the milk and, and front it all up and all of these old ladies would come in and the first thing they would do is stick their bony little arms all the way to the back of my cooler and pull uh, the uh, the the newest milk out first. You know, and I even got to the point where I started, huh, I'll fix you. And I'd put one old one in the back of the roast. So they'd pull that out, they'd look at it, and be like, oh, it's all old. You know, and they'd take it. Um, just because they would screw it. It was a small grocery store, and a few people doing that would mess everything up uh, for us with our stocking really bad. But, you know, it's a good point. It's something I really haven't considered a lot. And it is a good reason to diversify with brand and lot numbers. So thanks for that tip, man. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Scott Beach from uh, North Florida. Hey, uh, I, I have a question about, um, I got a, a, a travel trailer for my bug out location, and uh, I got a generator, and I, I was going to hook it up uh, to the generator one night when the electric went out and run the air conditioning. But from what I found out is that you can't do it that way because my generator is a 5,500-peak lot, and it's got a 220 plug-in, and two 110 plug-ins, but they're only 15 amp apiece. So I know my air conditioning unit requires a 30 amp service. So how do I hook that up? Uh, look forward to the answer. Thanks. This is a great question because it's got a lot going on with it. First of all, um, it has going on with it, try stuff before you need it. Because you waited until you needed it and you tried it and you figured out it didn't work. All right? Second, it's the, the question itself. What do we do with this situation? Well, part of the issue you have is they do make generators, and your generator is probably more than capable of producing it, but it doesn't have an outlet for it with 30-amp service uh, outlets on them. And you might, if you really want to do this, need to go get a new generator with a 30-amp service outlet on it. Because in a travel trailer, I think a lot of people don't know this, especially if you've not been in an RV or at all, your power in your trailer is going to be divided between one side DC and one side AC. The stuff that's AC, it doesn't matter how many batteries you stick in there, unless you go in there and set up a custom inverter system and stuff like that, you could put in 20 DC batteries, and you're not going to do a hell of a lot of good because all your DC is going to do in a, in a, in a travel trailer is run a few things like some monitoring stuff maybe can run both for your refrigerator to know whether to pull propane or use electric and um it, but it's going to mostly run some lights you know and maybe your stereo system and that's probably about it so you need AC power for stuff like an air conditioner and the electric side of your hot water heater um and all the GFCI and and other uh, you know 110 outlets out there in your travel trailer so you got to have a generator to do that, or you have to have access to grid power to do that. Now, the next thing is, it's not necessarily the case that your your air conditioner needs a 30-amp service. Your service to the trailer itself is a 30-amp service plug. And that means that all of the stuff running on the AC side can draw up to 30 amps based on the power source. All right? So 
The question is, how many amps does your AC unit draw if it's the only thing running on the AC side? It's probably still more than 15 amps. Probably. I don't know, you can check the spec, because they do make an adapter plug. They make an adapter plug that goes on that great big 30-amp plug that goes down to uh, a 110 outlet, and you can plug it in there. Here's the problem. If, if it overdraws, right, what will happen is it'll, it'll, it'll blow the breaker, or sometimes it'll overdraw just enough that that little adapter, it will actually like arc, well, not arc weld, it's not the right term, but it will weld the damn thing onto your, 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 your power line. Right, if you overdraw that, the heat that's generated there, even if it trips the breaker eventually, uh, the guy at the RV shop told me this, he's seen them where you just can't get them off. You just had to cut them off. And sometimes they even ruin that pretty expensive, uh, draw line. So, you need to look at the, the power draw of the AC unit itself. If it's 15 amps or less, which it probably isn't, but if it were, any, anything in there that's 15 amps or less, you could run the AC side with that with the adapter to your um, your generator. So you could plug it in with an adapter, run your generator, and uh, go nuts with everything in there as long as you don't overdraw the circuit, which means you could probably do everything but run the AC or the electric hot water heater. What it would allow you to do, though, in a travel trailer is run the fan unit of your AC. That's another option that you have. Um, it all comes down to how much that that um, that circuit's drawing. The best option you have is to get a generator that's designed to provide power to RVs at a 30 amp circuit level, which uh, there's quite a few options out there to do that. There may be some way to modify things or, or what have you with your existing generator, but that's beyond my knowledge. Anybody knows another solution than the one I gave today, please chime in in today's show notes and uh, leave a comment. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Carson from Canada with a word of advice for any spouse that is taking a trip, for anyone that's taking a trip with their spouse, um, and their spouse asks, do you want me to drive when their spouse is not familiar with the area? If the answer, no, it's easier for me to drive, comes to mind, then before you can utter any words, I want you to lean over, take your foot, shove it in your mouth all the way, and just nod. And help your spouse drive. Because my wife went out of town without me for the first time in this area, and because I had never had her drive, she went, she got lost. Because she didn't know her way. And now I'm kicking myself for a couple of things that I didn't let her drive that more often, and that I didn't go over the MapQuest directions to make sure that they're actually good and easy directions beforehand, which is another point. When you're making your uh, documentation package, make sure they're good easy directions that go in there, otherwise you can really wind up getting screwed up. All right, have a great one. Bye. Wise words, very wise words, and something we talked about a lot in the very beginning of the show when I was, I used to do a lot of shows, uh, in the first couple hundred episodes where I talked about bugging out and having documentation plans, and I felt like we did that enough, people could go back and listen to that, but 
good one to reiterate, and especially with the maps and understanding the general area, being orientated, you know, being able to, to, to stand anywhere around areas that you usually go and just stop and go, okay, you know, where's north? And be able to say that's north, that's south, that's east, that's west. And staying orientated where if you know the directions and you know the basic area, you know, well, if I need to get to the interstate, it's south of me and that way south. So at least even if I don't really know where I am, I'm in a new part of town. I know the general direction I need to head. Uh, those are all important things. Let me add some words of wisdom to Carson's words of wisdom. Once you've said yes, learn to stick your foot in your mouth as much as possible when it comes to helping as, as Carson calls it. For a variety of reasons. One, because if you help too much, fellas, you're going to get responses like, shut up, or do you want to drive, or who's driving this car? And you don't like those responses because they lead to tension and unhappy marital things, right? So don't help too much. The other thing is that there's a reason not to help too much. The very reason Carson's saying let your wife drive or your husband drive if the woman's usually the driver. So they get orientated to the area and they become accustomed to the route. I can tell you right now, if I get in a car with someone who's driving and we go to a place I've never been and we maybe have gone there two or three times over like a month or three months or something like that, I can sort of kind of get there, but I really don't know my way. Now, if it's basic, like, interstate stuff, I have a really good memory, so that stuff gets blended in. But if there's a lot of side streets and back roads or something like that, I don't really know how to get there if I haven't driven there myself. Even if I drive there, if I'm given instructions every step of the way, I kind of go into, like, it's almost like a GPS mode there where you really didn't learn anything. But if a guy says, hey, you know, take this road till you find Oak Street and make a ride on Oak, I'll tell you when you're coming up on Oak, it shuts up. You know, the way men usually give directions. Um, women, you know why men don't want to ask for directions? Because they might end up getting directions from a woman. Seriously. Nah, I'm, I'm kidding. Anyway, <laughs> you know, there's the big tree, and this is the more the mall is instead of miles distances and east and north and south and west and right and left, right? Um, anyway, uh, you might get directions from my brother-in-law, who's worse than any woman at directions. Anyway, as a, getting off of that, before I get myself in trouble today, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, if you let a person only get certain cues from you as to where they're going, like the exit's coming up, take the exit, and you let it go, then their mind has to engage the trip. And it becomes, so if, if you do that with me one time and I drive to a place, I could leave for 10 years, come back to that area, probably drive to the same, same place again. It's, it's now ingrained in me because I had to think, act, and do all together. Where if you take away any of those pieces and give anything other than a little bit of guidance, that doesn't happen. So definitely the maps, definitely, you know, have people drive when you take trips to places. If you have a place you would normally bug out to at least one time when you're doing it, let your spouse drive from the house. Because here's the bigger issue. All the joking and stuff aside. Um, if forever, for instance, at any time ever, a major disaster happens, and you're at work and your spouse is at home or their work, and one of you needs to go home and pick some stuff up, and the other one just needs to go to a rally point, and you guys need to get together, even if you have the documentation package, the maps and everything like that, in a panic situation, they need more than anything else confidence that they know what they're doing. And you guys need to be able to talk about it and say, yeah, we're going to meet here. You go get the kids at school. I'll go to the house and grab the things and we'll meet, right? And everybody needs to feel good about that and just be able to do it. 
So don't just right in line with yesterday's show. Don't disempower anybody in your family. One of the great things you can do with your kids, right, is when you're going to a place they've never been before, say, watch how we get there, and you tell mommy or daddy how to get home. And they go, do you know how to, I know how to get home, but I'll see if you know how to get home. Make your kids participate in your driving so they can go, oh, you go there, you go there. So maybe a lot of times an adult understands the severity of a situation better than a kid, and sometimes that gives the kid the advantage because they're more calm. Right? As long as mom can pretend to be calm, and she's, mommy needs help. Can you tell me where we need to go to meet daddy? Oh, you need to go. See? So make sure everybody in the family knows the routes to go places. And it'll help your kids' minds anyway. It'll make them more empowered. And if they ever get in a bad situation, and someone like a cop or just a friendly person is going to help them, they don't know how to get the hell home. So the more knowledge you can impart to your children and your family about orientation, Which direction, folks? You, I, I know some some people really, really struggle with the north, south, east, west thing. Why do I need to care? I've had people tell me that. Well, I don't know. You take this street to that street to that. I know how to get there. But if you're not orientated, the minute you're off of your known route, you're screwed. You don't know where you're going. So you know, I, and for the people that always think this way, you're like, duh. But trust me, folks. Trust me, and I guarantee you, some of you folks that are married are sure your spouse is fine with this. I dare you. I dare you, sometime when you're just in the middle of a shopping center or something, go, honey, do you know which way north is? And if they go, it's that way, and it's that way, good. If they don't know, you got to be careful. This is one of these things that spouses get upset with other spouses about. But you got to know that. you got to know that cold. you got to know, from my house, if I want to go to destination A, what direction is that in general from the house? Even if I go east, and then I go north, and then I go back west a bit to get there, Uh, it, it, what's the general direction if it was on a map? If you don't have these things in your head, navigation in a stressful situation becomes all that more difficult. So, great call from Carson. Folks, despite my joking around, be nice to each other with this one, but this is something the family needs to know cold. Where you are, how to get to other places, and general directions. So that you can tell somebody, go north, and they understand what the hell that means. Because right and left can change if I missed, which way are you coming from? You know, if I say, if I say I'm heading south, okay, well, you're going the wrong way, right? Because we're going, you're going to go north from where you are. Then you need to turn around, right? But right and left, I mean, that's all relative to the individual. So, very important that everybody has good navigational, uh, map reading and orientation skill sets. All right, let's go ahead and take the next one. Hi, Jack. This is Andy and Savannah again. And I was just realizing that I need to get some water purification system for my family. And just wondering what you recommend. We respect your opinion and love to hear what you have to say on recommendations for water purification. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. You know, on this, I really don't want to sound like I'm just deferring to my obvious sponsor, but it, the reality is in all of the water purification systems that I've looked at, If you want water purification for your home, something that's going to sit in your house that you're going to use, the best and most economical systems are Berkey systems, and you can get those best deals I can find online, damn near, for no matter how much shopping you do from the Berkey guy. So use our sponsor and go there. Um, the, the thing with this is, what type of water purification are you looking for, though? If you're looking for a, something to sit in your house, And, uh, and make clean water for you, I, I have no qualms saying Berkey. 
If you're looking for something for a field-level purification, something that's going to be out in a camping situation or, or what have you, Berkey's really aren't the best for that. You're, you're better off looking at something like the Lifesaver product uh, for that Ready-Made Resources offers. Uh, but they're, comparative to Berkey, very expensive per gallon produced, and... Um, They just, you know, they don't look good sitting in your house. That's what they're, they're for being out there. The, the water bottle, the Lifesaver 4K, that's designed to, you know, fit a bug out bag. And, um, the, the, the 10K and, and, and I think there's a 15 or a 20K, those are big jerry cans that are designed to go on the back of the truck. And, you know, you only get so much time to pick up some water and you can purify it. It's in there and it, as it comes out, it gets purified. So two different worlds, but, Here's the thing, and I've talked to a lot of people that think Berkey is expensive. It does seem expensive when you buy the system and the two filter cartridges that come with it. And if you're worried about fluoride in your water, and I am, you buy the extra two cartridges for your fluoride filtration, the initial investment seems expensive. When you look at Berkey, and you look at every other water purification system out there, Berkey performs either better, or some of the systems are damn good and as good. But there's nothing that performs better. And then when you do a cost analysis of per gallon produced, Berkey beats everything that's even close to as good, and it beats a lot of things in cost that aren't even close. If you compare, for instance, those what looks like cheap Breda, Breda filters with the, with the pitchers that you, you know, you stick the pitcher in your, your, your refrigerator, and every time you need more water, you fill the top. Oh, the cost per gallon out of those things is astronomical. If you compare it to bottled water, Berkey is the most affordable, and it looks... We have ours set up on a little wine uh, rack table now in our uh, our dining room. Everybody that's come over since we got us like, oh, what is that? Oh, that's cool. And, uh, of course, they have the ones with the lights that are clear and all, but the stainless steel ones I just think are beautiful uh, sitting anywhere in your home as long as you have a room for them. So that's what I would do. And it's not just because they're my sponsor... They're my sponsor because I think they're the best. You, you know how it works with me. You don't just get to be a sponsor because you have a check. We have turned away multiple sponsors. You will see a sponsor disappear at the end of this month. They're not leaving voluntarily. I won't say who they are, and I'm not going to say anything bad about them, but they didn't even do anything wrong. They just There's some things that I just have chosen to open up the slot to somebody new. You know, so being a sponsor on the Survival Podcast is something that's a premium, okay? It's something that you got to qualify for. And so Berkey naturally would qualify for that. And Jeff, the Berkey guy himself, he'll take good care of you. Give him a call. And uh, he'll, 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 he'll do whatever he can to help you. Um, And we have another question about water purification later in the show, so I'm not going to go any deeper than that for right now. But for product recommendation in home, especially just for making the water that already comes out of your sink safer to drink, Berkey, no questions asked. And if you look at the filtration specs and what it removes, it's as good or better as anything on the market. And yet, while a high initial investment, the lowest cost per gallon produced I can find anywhere. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, Jack. Dan from Minnesota, the frozen tundra. Uh, I've got a cold right now, so I might be a little hard to understand. Uh, I'm looking at possibly making a uh, bicycle-powered generator this winter. And what I'm thinking about doing is taking a car generator and uh, somehow attaching it onto the uh, bicycle so that when you're uh, biking indoors, of course, in Minnesota, 
uh, that you'd be generating power going from the generator to a uh, a marine style of uh, battery and uh, then converting to AC. Uh, I looked on the internet. There is one person that's doing something similar to that. I didn't want to pay the money to get the schematics or anything. I think I can do this myself. I uh, just wanted to have your thoughts uh, and or comments. Thank you very much. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Well, there's no reason you can't do it. It sounds like a cool little project and something that you could um, learn a lot by doing about power generation in general. So go for it. With a couple of things to understand. One, limitations of how much electricity you're going to produce. There is, um, you know, a lot of thermodynamics that you don't get more out than you put in. So basically, you're, you could actually measure the electrical output honestly in calories burned. So, If you get on there and you burn 250 calories a day bicycling indoors, which is great, you know, um, then you're going to produce about 250 calories worth of electricity and not a bit more. Now, we don't measure the electricity that way, but I'm just trying to make it simple for you to understand that you're only going to get out what you put in, right? So you're going to be biking anyway, it's an exercise thing for you, whatever, you want to make the kids get on there for 15 minutes a day before dinner or after dinner to help keep their their uh, their, their guts from expanding or whatever, great, it's wonderful. Uh, I have a guy on the blog recently that thinks I'm against bikers, I'll save that till Monday because I got a bike question by email, it's great, I have nothing against, I think bikes are great, I just don't think they save polar bears from global warming, so uh, great idea. The caveat though, the thing you're going to have to be mindful of is, a generator um, has to turn at a certain number of RPMs to produce enough voltage to charge a battery. So the only thing you're really going to have to pay attention to is your gear ratio. So you need to find out from whatever alternator or whatever you get your hands on to generate electricity what its RPMs need to be for optimum production and then try to create a gear ratio with your bike that's going to result in one revolution of, 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 your, of your feet giving you the corresponding desired revolutions out of the uh, the output of the alternator or whatever you use. Check eBay. There's all kind there's alternators that are basically built for people that are already set up and optimized and ready to go to be used in small wind machines. So if you get your hands on one of those, you may have a lot easier of of a of a, a challenge so to speak. You also might consider using multiple uh, alternators. You can do that. There's no reason you can't and uh There's still, you can't get out more than you put in, but you can get more out per minute or per hour of cycling. So those are some other things to look at. Funny thing is, this has been my idea for years of how to make our prisons more productive, that inside every jail cell there should be a bike. And on that bike should be a generator on the back of it. And our prisoners, uh, and, and folks, understand that I realize there's people in prison that don't belong there. But our prisoners that belong there. Right, they should all have a certain watt uh, production. So once you produce a certain amount of watts, you get you know breakfast, and then you want lunch. Well, you gotta make some more wattage. And if we did that, and we look at all of our prison systems, we actually could produce a fair amount of electricity. Now somebody's gonna say, but you don't get out more than you put in. But we have to feed these people anyway. Right, we have to feed them, take care of them. I'm not about harsh treatment here. I'm just saying, look at all the free green energy we could produce. Uh, at least the prisons could produce enough electricity to create their own backup power systems. Because backup power is kind of important 
in a prison. Wouldn't want to be dependent on it, but if it's there, it's cost savings, and it's more productive than shanking your buddy uh, in the yard because you're still running your gang on the inside of a prison. If you had to spend most of your day on a bike to get your food, you wouldn't have time for all that bullshit now, would you? So there's just an aside. But I like the project. Let me know how it goes. And again, check eBay for different options for what could actually be the generator portion of the power side. And I'd really love to hear how this thing goes. Uh, you could also maybe put some fans on the uh, on the bicycle wheels for the summertime. I know it's cold there right now, but uh, maybe if you came up with something that would come off, like seeing the exercise bikes that turn fans and create air circulation, uh, you'd get uh, you'd get both of those things going on at the same time. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, Steve from Minnesota. Um, love your show. I guy at work told me about it, and I've been about a month ago. I've been hooked ever since. Uh, question might get long so I'm going to try to keep it quick here. Uh, I kind of started out a few years back. I bought a house and basically did everything the wrong way. Uh, and a couple of years ago I you know, I just eyeballed deep in debt and uh, I was kind of embarrassed to find out you know, or to really hit me that I had $32,000 in credit card debt. And uh, so that was, uh, was about a year and a half ago and then in the span of one year I paid down half of it and I figure by next year at this time I'll have all my credit card debt down but uh, my house is my big problem it's worth about half what I owe on it and I think it's going to keep dropping and I'm just wondering about your opinion on when you just kind of say screw it and walk away or you know if that's even a big deal it's it's in a rural town but it's in a subdivision so it's kind of the worst of both worlds you know from suburban and rural you know I'd the inconvenience of living far out, but, uh, you know, still having a house in a subdivision. But uh, wondering about the moral and ethical and the, the how difficult it is to just walk away from a, a mortgage and rent or do whatever. Uh, I don't know, just uh, wondering your opinion on it. Uh, love your show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, first, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're in this situation. And second, um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you because of the way you presented your problem. What you said was, I did everything wrong. Not some guy tricked me into this mortgage or what have you. Um, I did this. And that means you've accepted responsibility for it. And that makes making your decision going forward a little bit easier. You also have a tremendous amount of debt. Um, that you've, you've knocked out half of it a year and can knock the other half out in the next year. My gut is telling me this is my advice for you. Stay in your house for another year. Pay your debt off. Get zero sum on the debt. And reevaluate your situation. Um, you bought the house. So there had to be a reason that you bought the house. There had to be something about it that you liked. People don't buy a house like, oh, this sucks, but I'm going to buy it anyway. Or, you know, this is a, sh this is just a crappy house. It's terrible. I, I could never see myself living here. Let's, let's put an offer in. It just doesn't happen. And, um, So there was some endearing quality to this place in the first place. The other thing is, I, this is one of these calls where I wish I had you, you know, on the phone and live, live on the air type thing, where I could ask you, you know, why do you think the house is going to keep dropping? Is the house damaged? Is there like underlying fundamental problems? Like is the structure falling apart and the repairs aren't worth the cost of repair? You know, does it need twenty thousand dollars worth of work and you'll put twenty thousand dollars of work into it and the house will only go up in value over where it's already undervalued by five grand. It financially doesn't make sense. In that case you're you're more toward the point of your the house has captured you. 
if you think it's going to go down because you just think the market's going to keep going down, the housing market has become remarkably stable at this point. And uh, there's some big problems now with we're finding with these mortgage foreclosures and all, and that's going to put a small bump in the road, but it's not going to be a long-term bump. And it's folks, it's good it happened right now because it's happened at the time of year where people buy the le- are least likely to buy a house anyway. Uh, from now through January 1st is the slowest part of the housing market there is. People don't like to move during Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. Uh, nobody does anything in December. I mean, really. It's hard to get, you know, even when you're trying to close deals when I, back when I was in sales and all, December is the worst, especially if you don't do it in the first week, it's done. So it gives us the slow time of the, the season to kind of clear some of this stuff up. Um, I am telling you, the false recovery is on the way. The people have been, said that I think the false recovery is, is now, and, and that I was right, and here it is, and it's going to fall off the end, because all these people like Salente and, and uh, uh, Schiff and all are saying that the next bust is still coming. This, I think we have a lot more to go up before we come back down. I think we're going to see the peak of the false recovery after the elections and after the new year. And I Don't think, you know, the Dow Jones being at 12.5 is out of the question by early next year. I don't think that having more people buying homes is out of the question. Uh, I don't think we're not going to see, I think we're starting to see companies higher. In spite of the fact, like, Citibank just hired, it was either Citibank or one of the big financial companies just said they're going to hire 10,000 people. And some analysts came out and said, well, this can hurt their stock price. Because they're investing in their company. So we're starting to see these big companies that are making profits now wanting to capitalize on the opportunity. We're starting to see inflation kick in. Inflation, I've said this for years, it looks good. So I think there's an opportunity for you to maybe by sometime early next year be in a better position to unload it. And I don't think it's going to go much further down than it has in the short term. Short term being the next 24 months. So time may give you a better perspective. If you just hate the place now, if you just, I mean, you just hate it, and you're actually stuck, well, then you got a problem. And then you got to think about this. And then what you need to do, the first thing you need to do is you need to start making phone calls to your bank, and you need to go up the chain as far as you can and say, look, I need to you know, look at maybe doing a short sale here. Um, I need maybe to look at doing a, um, what, do you, what do you call it, a renegotiation of the loan, uh, whatever they call that now. There's a word for it. Uh, God, it doesn't come to me, but you know what I'm talking about, where they redo the the terms of the mortgage. Um, Anything you can to get them to play ball with you. And since you're paying and you've been paying on time, they don't need any more problems. They just might work with you somewhat on this. The next thing I would ask you if I had you live on the air is, how do you know it's only worth half of what you owe? Have you had it appraised? Have you looked at comparables? You know, have you... Paid attention to what other house... Are you only basing it on the fact that some house down the road was for sale for a lot less than yours and didn't sell? That's not really a good indicator because if your house is really nice inside and their house is just destroyed inside because it was actually foreclosed on and they stripped everything out of the house when they left, like pulled wire out of the wall, and some of these houses, that's what's going on, and you just see the outside, it looks okay, and you're making that a comparable, that's not really a comparable. Have you gotten a real estate agent involved? Have you said, what would this? Ha- what would you list this house for today if you were going to list it and you wanted it to sell in 90 days to 120 days? you got to get that information before you're sure you're really that upside down in your home. Um, depends on what you you know if you have a house that you paid three hundred thousand for, it might be close. It's probably not half. It's probably 
in the two to two twenty range right now in most most markets. If it's a house that you paid one hundred and fifty two hundred for, there's no way it's in half right now. Uh, in most markets, I mean, I know I'm a little bit biased because I'm lucky. I'm in a market that we just haven't really had the implosion that, that other markets have had. Um, but I would give it some time if you're financial. It sounds like you're doing financially fine, right? Because you're able to pay this huge debt off that you screwed up and accumulated. Keep paying the debt. Give it some time. If you are going to walk away, if you ever get to the point where you just say, I'm going to walk away, there is some morality to, to, to in this. I, I've had people get upset with me over it, probably people that have walked away, and probably people that have walked away with not a care, and now they don't want to hear the other side of it. You signed your name to the, to the document. You put your name up and said, I will make good on, the, on borrowing this money. I will pay it back. And there is a moral, ethical imperative that you make best effort to fulfill the pledge you made with your name. There's also a business side of this, though, too. If the house is really only worth half of what you paid for it, you might get into a situation where that's what you need to do. Um, the problem is you will destroy your credit. Not that I care about your credit. I really don't. I don't care about your credit cards and, and things like that. But if you want to buy a home, you're going to need a mortgage. And if you walk a mortgage, you're probably looking at seven years before you can buy another home. So that's something you're going to have to consider as well. Uh, it might be longer with some of the things that are going to go on. So if you're going to walk, you're going to have to rent dirt cheap, and you're going to have to stockpile the hell out of cash. Because no matter how bad your credit is, if you bring enough money to the table, a bank will back you for the rest. Especially because there's going to be so many people that have been in this situation. Eventually, banks are going to have to start loaning money to people that walk mortgages. And they're not going to be able to wait a full seven years if we're going to kick this recovery into overdrive, if we're going to fix the real estate market. Eventually, they're going to have to say, man, why did this person walk? Well, he owed $500,000 on a house worth $200,000, and his bank told him to screw and wouldn't work with him. That's why I'm saying try everything you can to negotiate with your bank. And this is what I want anybody that's going to walk a mortgage to do. One, do that because it's the morally and ethically right thing to do. Your bank may very well tell you, go screw, we're not going to help you. I don't care. Do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. Number two, document every single thing you say and every single thing they say and every rejection. If you get them, if they're going to reject something, try to get them to send you letters. File it. Someday, when you're trying to, to, to buy a new home, go to the lender with a big pile of cash, 20% down or more, which is what you should be doing to buy a home, and All of that documentation. And if they say, well, we don't know if you're a good risk, say, look, everybody knows what happened in 2008, 2009, 2010. We did everything we can. We came under hard times. These are all the attempts that we made to negotiate with our lender for better terms before we walk the property. That's going to go a lot. When you go to a bank that underwrites its own mortgages and you have your, you, and you cash heavy, you say, we've also learned from this. We're coming in with far more equity than we did before. We were, we were caught up in that, that, that frenzied wave. That's going to go a long way toward being able to get yourself back on track faster. So you do it because it's the right thing to do and you do it because it's going to leave you proof that you made the attempts. All right. Best I can do for you. I don't know why. My gut is pay the rest of the debt off, stay in place, give yourself till at least springtime. And uh, in spring, reevaluate your situation because it sounds like financially you're okay. 
right? There's a lot of people that are in this situation. I know I'm going long on this one, but I want to put this in perspective for you. There's people that bought a house, and if this crap hadn't happened, and they still have their job, and they're still getting paid, and they still have the same income level they always did, and if this crap hadn't happened, they wouldn't even want to move. They'd be like, I don't care. I, you know, I, I like it here. That's why I bought the house. But because the psychology is telling them your house isn't worth what you're paying for it, they want out. That doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. All right? Because if your payments, you know, a payment you're easily able to make, you're overall happy with the house. If somebody just took 20% off the payment, you'd just be like, screw it, I'm staying. If that's the case, you're, you're just letting fear, uncertainty, and doubt harm you. Because by the time, if you just live there like you planned anyway, you're paying down the debt on the mortgage on the house. And the other thing is you're giving some time for more real estate recovery. Again, guys, I'm telling you, before the final of oblivion, there's a spike. There's a peak coming. We're not there yet. When you get to the peak, if you want out, do everything you can to get out. I'll tell you when I think we're there. I might be wrong. I could be completely wrong about this whole thing. But everything I'm seeing, and I'm starting to see some of the more conservative analysts start to say, go back in, buy stocks. They're bullish on stuff now. Bullish on everything. I'm seeing a price correction in gold. All you gold bugs that have been laying the gold up and making up, take some profits. Take some profits. Why? Gold is booming. What always comes before a bust, a boom. I, I can't see gold not having a major price correction in the next year. I know that's not part of this question, but... I, I, I gotta see. I, I gotta tell you, I see it coming, because there is going to be tremendous opportunity in the next couple years to leverage money, and people that have made tons of money in gold are going to cash out and take those profits and use them to take advantage of these other opportunities. I'm not saying the economy is in good shape or it's going to get really, really good anytime soon. I'm saying. It's going to get better than it is. People are going to think that's a great thing. They're going to go back to stupid ways. That's going to spur things even further. We're going to get a great big credit pop at the end of this. But there's some time before it happens. And there's what looks like a recovery in the interim. I've been saying it since 2008. I said it before the crash. The crash would come, a false recovery would come, and a bigger crash would come. So, all right, I hope that, that did the best I could for you. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matt from Chicago, Illinois. Um, short-time listener, uh, love you, love your show. Um, yeah, I'm um, doing my best to survive here in the probably the most corrupt city and state in the country. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm planning. I'm, 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 I think I'm doing a pretty good job of planning things, but I'm having a hard time um, putting myself through you know, scenarios or coming up with scenarios in which to plan for because I know that you say that, you know, and in bug out situations, you should pack to be uh, event specific. And I'm having trouble coming up with uh, scenarios. Uh, you know, I, I have a big imagination. I could, you know, think of anything from, you know, n nuclear strikes on all major cities or uh, including Chicago or, you know, Yellowstone volcano blowing or, You know, I hear about this 200 years earthquake that will happen in the Midwest. So, you know, I, I'm since we're centrally located, I, I can go north, south, east, or west. I have, you know, a wide um, array of places to go to. But I was hoping you could uh, tell me 
maybe top five uh, events to plan for. Um, um, you know, uh, most the most uh, likely events to plan for, possibly. Um, I do have some rural land. Um, I'm actually just moved out to suburban um, Chicago, so I'm not, you know, right downtown. But um, that's my question. Um, sorry for you know, long, but uh, that's my question. Thanks, bye. Well, let me do what I can for you there. It's not so much event-specific as geographically specific, so I'm not going to worry about having a lot of cold-weather gear um, in, in South Florida unless my bug-out location's in Montana. Right, um, but I am going to worry in Florida about flooding, and I'm going to worry about hurricanes and, and things like that. Where I'm, I'm not real worried about hurricanes in Chicago. There's some pretty bad weather you guys get up there, but it's pretty much uh, a, a kind of a, a peak and valley type thunderstorm event, more like we have here in North Texas. Uh, I think we have it worse than you guys, but you know, you get some pretty bad, severe stuff with some tornadoes and stuff like that. That's not really bug out stuff, right? what you really need to think about is what is the most likely things that would make you have to leave and go somewhere else. Uh, number one, on the big scale, is pandemic. That's the number one thing that I think is a risk on the, the Hollywood-level, large-scale, national or global disaster that's going to make you want to get out of the city. Number two in your area, from the natural side of things, massive ice storm. Massive ice storm or other situation that causes a massive grid failure, electrical failures. Um, problem with, with, the, with the electrical failures is there are a lot of things that could cause that that would be very little to no warning time. Most of the big ice weather, you're going to get at least a day's warning. And there are times when you're going to have to look at things and go, maybe I need to get out over ice. Ice can be one of the most detrimental uh, and damaging things for a city. Ice has the ability to not just take down local power, uh, but to take down major power lines if it's a big enough, bad enough ice storm. And there's a potential um, in your area and in a lot of places in Canada specifically, like Montreal, for you know the end-all, be-all mother of ice storms. Something that lasts several days and starts stacking so much ice on things that power lines and poles and even major transmission lines and, and, and poles begin to fall. So there's, there's kind of another one. Uh, terrorist threat, credible threat of nuclear, uh, biological or something like that would be something I would see as potential in Chicago. Civil unrest. For, it doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter if it's a court hearing. It doesn't matter if it's the city's broken and send out the uh, the welfare checks or whatever. It doesn't matter. Civil unrest, probably your most probable wide-scale event, since you're a little bit more towards the outskirts, might not be as big a deal for you, but definitely could spill over. Huge population uh, there uh, of, of, of people uh, that can go nuts. Uh, huge gang population, several different, very large, well-organized, well-armed gangs that you know run in the Chicago area. So that's another one. Um, those are your big ones. I mean, it, economic collapse, yeah, but that's again, folks, the the, the concept that you're going to see our economy go from relatively okay to you know patriots the collapse. 
in, in a in a in a two week period. It's just not the way a modern economy falls apart. They spiral slowly to the ground. And to be fair to the author of that book, that sometimes I think I'm being too tough on James Wesley Rawls, who runs the Survival Blog or SurvivalBlog.com. No the in there. Uh, he's really a smart guy. And if you read his blog and you read about things about financial collapse, he actually says the same thing, that the book was written for the purpose of expanding upon all these ideas and, and, and seeing how bad things could really get. But the economic collapse that he sees is far more what I just said, the spiral. So that gives you a lot of time to think about changing your life, to get out of areas that are going to be negatively affected by that. And it's, it's, it's longer probability than a pandemic. So... There you go. Those are the best things I can come up with for your area. Um, I don't see a real huge earthquake threat there. It always could happen anywhere in the world. Uh, you guys keep emailing me about earthquakes in Arkansas. They're in northeastern Arkansas, and I'm in southwestern Arkansas. It's not really one of my big concerns at all. I mean, everybody in California is completely screwed if I even have to worry a little bit um, if you go on probabilities there. Uh, flooding, maybe, but... You know, it's not going to be biblical flooding in Chicago. Uh, you've got the lakes there and all, but there's a pretty good system in place there. It's civil unrest, pandemic, severe winter weather, economic problems um, that I see as your biggest issues uh, in Chicago. Potentially some totalitarianism being a real big problem in any kind of a situation with martial law. It's probably the last city I would want to be near uh, in a martial law scenario, the la I think I'd rather be I'd rather deal with martial law in New York than Chicago. Seriously, I, I mean honestly, I've seen how New Yorkers respond in a disaster, and I don't think that the underbelly of Chicago um, can be suppressed the way that it seems to have been in quite a few different scenarios in New York. I I mentioned this before. I was in New York City during the major grid failure. Uh, God, I guess it was seven, eight years ago, something like nine years ago now. Um, it was the most calm, and this was after 9-11, right? I mean, people thought maybe this is terrorist-related. It was the most calm, rational place you could have been. I, I had cash on me, so I sat down and got a beer from a guy that was running a cash bar. Uh, I sat on a table watching people walk, but there was no looting, there was no rioting, there was no nothing. I think you turn the lights off in Chicago like that. Uh, especially when it goes into the evening and it gets dark, I think you got a totally different situation. So those are the things I'd look out for. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Lisa, a.k.a. Wolf on the Forum. I have a question. Um, my grandmother has passed away about a year ago, and I found a bunch of cannon supplies, jars, stuff like that in her basement that she used years ago. Um... Are they things you still use, or would it be best just to buy new ones? All right, thanks, and have a good day. Thanks for the show. Bye now. Easy one. Uh, no reason you probably can't use every single thing that you found except the lids. Uh, with canning jars, you have a jar, you have a ring, and you have a little lid. Odds are that your grandmother knew what she was doing with canning, and every time the lids were, were, were in need of replacement, they were discarded, but they're so dadgone cheap. Um, I would throw away, that's the little tin looking lid thing that the ring holds down onto the canning jar. I would throw away all of those. I would go out and get new ones of those and I would use everything else. And if you can the way you're supposed to, there's no, there's no, nothing else, uh, that's an expendable product. The canner itself, 
I mean, if it's a pressure canner, you're going to want to make sure that uh, it's in good repair. It's got a good, if it has a gasket, the gasket's in good repair and all. But other than a steam canner, there's really nothing that can go wrong with them. The jars themselves, no reason to get rid of. Um, there might be some things like some spices and stuff like that, or herb blends or whatever laying there. Uh, nor is something that a lot of people use a kind of a pickling packet from. Uh, that stuff, if that's around, I would discard that. But the jars, the rings, and any of the equipment itself, there's no expiration date on that stuff. Uh, the stuff my grandmother used was given to her by her great-grandmother, and my dad doesn't really use it today, but he keeps... I've tried to get him to give it to me. Um, just because I, I would use it, and... And whatnot, but he's not ready to let go of it yet. So that's fine. I have my own stuff, but uh, I will probably one day hand that down to you know my son or maybe his grandchildren. Uh, th that stuff lasts forever. It really does. That's what part of what makes it a good investment. So good question, but there's absolutely nothing I would worry about replacing other than any kind of like spice or ingredients or things like that because you don't know what that's been while it's been sitting up there. And again, the top lids. Uh, for the jars, because again, they're so cheap, there's no reason to risk anything there. And everything else, good to go. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, really enjoy your show. This is Doug in Flower Mound. I'm trying to get an idea of the hierarchy for water sources for purification purposes. In a suburban environment, uh, it seems like some likely sources would be swimming pools and maybe some ponds that would be adjacent to golf courses. Also, maybe some suburban creek beds. I know it's probably best to uh, seek a, the purest source possible. What are your thoughts, and how would you prioritize those? Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, well, good question. Let's start out with um, probably the best initial source of water to use in a suburban environment, if the grid fails, is going to be swimming pool water. Because other than the fact that it's got chlorine or whatever other chemicals in it, it's it's basically tap water. It's some of the cleanest water out there. It's constantly filtered and treated. And chlorine's relatively easy to remove. You take a bucket of water and sit it out in the sun for a day or two, and it'll evaporate most of the chlorine out on itself. And most filtration systems, like Berkey that we talked about earlier, filter chlorine just fine. Um, a lot higher chlorine levels in a pool than you would have in a... Uh, Uh, and tap water. But here's the other thing. In that situation, people aren't going to be out there dumping chlorine weekly and doing testing and stuff like that because you're in a disaster situation. So if you have access to pool water, it's your best base water of what's available if there's no planning. Secondly, I would tell you, though, what you should be doing is creating some kind of reserve water supply with rain catch or something like that. It's going to be great water to use, definitely clean. And if you have rain catch systems in place... Every time it rains, you continue to acquire more, and it replenishes itself. Of the things you mentioned, uh, ponds like golf course ponds and things like that, and the streams and rivers in in this in your in our area, that water is all disgusting. It, it can be it can be purified and it can be filtered. I would rely on two level treatment for any of that water. I would use both chemical first and then mechanical second um, on on that water. Here's why. Our streams and rivers around here take up an inordinate amount of industrial waste. It, it's ridiculous what's still going into our rivers and streams in the North Texas area. It's not as bad as it used to be, and it's not as bad as it is in a lot of places in the Northeast, especially around the coal mining uh, and textile areas and things like that, but it's not good. Um, your golf course ponds are literally crawling, 
crawling with um, fertilizer and insecticide waste. And so are all your moving bodies of water. If I had to pick between the two, in most instances, I would choose the flowing water over the still water. Because the flowing water, at least all that crap that gets in there, it's going somewhere and it's being run through. Anything that ends up in a pond, right, that doesn't have, um, it doesn't buy a lot, doesn't break down over time and eventually dissipate. It's not biodegradable. That's what I'm looking for. Anything like that, the concentration in the pond just keeps going up and up and up because there's nowhere for the water to go. Most of that stuff, as water evaporates from the pond, it stays in. It becomes a higher concentration. When it rains and it fills up, it brings more in, and it does it again and again and again. So even though both suck, Moving water is definitely, and just about always that's the case. But in, in, a, in a suburban environment, with all the crap that we're dumping into our water supply, it's even more the case. So pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers uh, are going to just be, I mean, literally at an insane level in any kind. Because think about a golf course. Like think about all these ponds and these office parks and things like that. What do they do all the time? They're always concerned with maintenance of their of their landscaping. Every spring, there's weed there's weed killer and fertilizer going down. There's insecticide going down. I mean, so there you go. Moving over still, which is good in the wilderness too. And uh, but you, in your urban and suburban environments, rely on rain catch and swimming pools. And swimming pools aren't the greatest, but it's going to be better than what you're going to get out of the pond at the golf course. Definitely. There you go. Let's take another one. Oh, hi, Jack. It's uh, Dean calling from Australia. I don't know if you know, but over here, uh, to buy a firearm, you need a permit. Every single one of them has to be registered. And therefore, the powers that be know exactly what you got and, uh, and where it is, and they even come and inspect. I was figured if uh, things weren't going great, uh, over here, the first thing they do would be remove everybody's firearm. Uh, anyway, I was toying with the idea of basically acquiring individual parts and um, you know, maybe putting something aside, assembling it, putting it aside. My question is, could you recommend any sort of firearm that is broken down into lots of different parts that there might be an abundance of that you can sort of acquire piece by piece? For example, I was thinking about, like, you know, my double-barrel shotgun. Um, I could get a shorter set of barrels for that quite easily, and that would be off the grid, and then maybe say the stock's damaged and acquire that and a few other parts, and then if there was an issue... I uh, could take a few bits out of the one I have that is registered and maybe finish off the other one, parts that uh, was handed in they wouldn't know were missing unless they tried to fire it. Anyway, it's just a thought, and um, I really appreciate uh, your ideas on that, if you think of any brands or whatever. And I uh, love the show, and uh, thank you very much. Bye. Well, first, it's hard for me to, to say anything that would even imply minor endorsement of any illegal activity, and what you're talking about is illegal, so I, all I can give you is information for informational purposes, and you do with it as you please. I put this call on even though I'm not comfortable really saying some of these things because it's more about America for me uh, today than Australia, and, and, and again, thank you for calling from Australia, I'm not putting Australia down, but... I want my American counterparts to hear what happens if you become neglectful of your Second Amendment rights. Okay? They know where every gun is. 
and they can come take them away from you, and they inspect your home to make sure the gun's there, and they monitor things like, you know, new parts and stuff like that. Well, freaking great, right? So don't let it happen to us. So the only reason I'm even willing to entertain this, even though it bars on illegality, is that I also think that it's immoral to restrict the right of people to keep and bear arms. I think it's absolutely immoral. So I'll do my best with it. The problem you'll run into is with any gun, no matter how many parts there are you can buy as pieces, parts, there's a critical component where the receiver is and that part with the chamber where the, the uh, cartridge actually is held is considered the gun. It's got its serial number and it's considered the gun. And you can generally, I mean this is even in the United States, you can buy every single part for a gun without any kind of real major paperwork or regist you know, registration of places that have it or just you know uh, the, the, the standard background check forms or what have you or acting as your own FFL or using your CHL or whatever it is. You can buy all that stuff without any of that except that one piece. And without that one piece it ain't a gun and it don't work. It's nothing but a bunch of parts. So... That's going to be make what you want to do almost impossible without really doing something illegal. There's the information. You do what you want to with it. My statement to you, though, would be, is there anything you can own that qualifies as a good defensive weapon that's not subject to this lunacy that your country's put in place? And I am sorry that they have done this to you. And I think you people in Australia... Uh, it's one of the most self-sufficient societies in the world. You need to rebel against this shit legally, uh, sanely. But, I mean, there needs to be a ballot box rebellion on this restriction. You guys need to do something about this. You need to not take this shit from your government. Um, and you guys in this country, we need to not ever let them do this to us. You can't tell this makes me mad. But on your alternatives, is a black powder weapon considered a gun in Australia? It probably freaking is. But if it isn't, you know, there's a lot you can do with black powder guns. When you're in a situation, if they did take away everything else, you know, at least you have something. Uh, archery gear, crossbows, things like that. I, I don't know. Are those restricted as, as, you know, are they under that kind of control there? So those are some other things. If you were going to build something, building black powder guns isn't that hard to do. Especially if you're looking at kind of smoothbore musket type thing. Again, I don't know if it's illegal there or not. This is informational only. But if you want to build something like that, it's much easier than building a proper centerfire rifle. All right? Um, you know, cap and ball pistols that are revolvers. It, again, I don't know how. Because in the United States, for my international listeners, I can go down to, to the Walmart or anywhere that sells a black powder gun. And I can go in there and buy a... Uh, 50 caliber uh, percussion black powder rifle, no paperwork, no nothing. ID, prove I'm of age to buy it, done. It's not a firearm in the traditional sense. right? It's a black powder gun, and it's totally totally different the way that it's handled. This includes like inline muzzle loaders and things that have great capabilities. So I, I, I bet Australia has decided those are under this same restriction. So best I can do for you, but folks... Please understand, this is what they want to do to us. If there are any guns, they want to restrict the kind, the caliber, the, the capability. They want to know where they are. They want the right to come in your home, look at them and say, that, there's three guns, that's what you're supposed to have, okay. Here's your little star, you can have them for another year. Where's that gun? Oh, we don't see it. Oh, we're taking the other ones away. You better tell us where the third one is or you're going to jail. You've lost your privilege to own a gun. 
Gun ownership in this country is a right, not a privilege. It's a human right. And it's despicable that any nation's done this to its citizens. Don't let it happen here. And again, thank you for calling in from Australia. I'm always uh, so honored when that happens. People call in internationally. Thank you so much. Uh, let's take one last one, and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up for today. Hey, Jack. This is uh, David Ross from Buffalo. I got a question for you that might be a little bit morbid. Uh, I used to listen to another podcast about doing stuff outdoors, and then the new show stopped coming. People posting questions on his website and asking why and what's going on and what happened. Well, the reason was is that he passed away and nobody knew about it for months. I know you're a prepper, and God forbid if this happens to you before you retire from the show, but what would happen to the survival podcast world you created? And maybe you could have a show on that subject of being prepped before you die, or when you die, being prepped when you die. Thanks for all the hard work you do, and I appreciate everything, especially all the great information you give to us. Thanks, Jack. I don't know that it's really morbid, but it is kind of a downer to end the show talking about my own death on a Friday, but uh, let's face it, none of us are immortal. The answer is I do have a business survival plan for the business to survive. Um, how long it would survive would be dependent upon how long uh, it would stay financially viable. And, um, you know, that's things like the Members Brigade. The Members Brigade provides value to you even if I'm not here, even if I'm not here every day broadcasting, and how long that would run and how long the people supporting it would stay in there uh, and continue to uh, support that as a legacy-type thing, I don't know. But hopefully it would stick around for a while. Uh, as long as it's financially viable to do things like keep the forum up, the forum would stay up. It would It's it's part of the business survival plan. There's other sites that I have that are more autopilot sites, and they're in my business survival plan. And what this is, and maybe I should do a show one day on building a survival plan for your business, especially for Internet entrepreneurs. Um, every site, uh, all the access information, the billing information, the cost and stuff, uh, where the money goes, how to get the money from one place to another, all that stuff's documented. So that if I'm dead, even if my wife's not completely familiar with this stuff, she could bring any competent person in with, with web technology and they could look at my documentation and, and kind of quote her a price to just keep the ball in the air, so to speak, from a technology standpoint and maybe kill some things off as they're not profitable and things like that. So that's there beyond that. Um, one of my inherent weaknesses with Survival Podcast is that it is me. The show is me. And that's why I'm trying, that's why I'm doing things like Save Our Skills. And it will be the first of many side satellite projects that come into creating an entire network that all kind of revolve around TSP and the forum. And eventually I'd like to one day actually take things to a point where maybe it's like a streaming radio station with shows on different things. I've talked to Terry Cooper about doing his own show uh, for, for people that want to live the RV lifestyle and things like that, bringing in somebody maybe to focus just on gardening, maybe somebody to focus just on permaculture. These are long-term plans, and hopefully I won't kick the bucket before them. But I am trying to lay the groundwork, and this is part of like some of this stuff's being held until we move and we set up a proper office and things like that. Um, and trying to figure out how to balance it so that as I expand, I bring people in who keep the majority of what they produce, you know, in the neighborhood of 70 to 90%, depending on what we're talking about. 
and that they can run that operation and they springboard off of what we're doing and everything makes everything more powerful so it's not just me. That makes the business scalable. Long term, it makes it more profitable. And it does lead to a day that someday I can go, this is Jack Spirico signing off for the last time and officially retire as somebody doing the show. I'll tell you, unless God has other plans, which could be serious illness or death, those are about the only two things that would happen, unless those other plans exist for me and the, 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 the infinite knowledge of the universe, I will be here for a very long time, decades, maybe definitely a decade or more. I'm not going anywhere because I love what I do. But there is a potential for me to one day kill over from an early heart attack, to get cancer, to be run over by a truck. It's not morbid to think about that. It's proper prepper planning. And, and maybe I need to do a show someday about, again, for all you guys that have your websites and stuff like that, to produce some income, how when you leave that behind for that to continue to put some income into your household, into your family, and for the business itself to survive. Right now, this is not my ego speaking, but right now, if I kill over dead tomorrow, the only thing left is the forum and 532 episodes you guys can listen to as long as you want to with me speaking to you from beyond the grave. That's it. You know? Stay of our skills. Check it out, guys. Make it a success. This is one reason why you need to make it a success. Go over there. Subscribe. Get on the, get on the alert list. Nick's putting great stuff out every day. Build your own thing. Show it to me. Maybe we can bring it in the fold. I mean, I'm not promising anything, but you know, these are reasons to build beyond that. And, and in your own lives and your own businesses to do that, because um, we're all mortal. We're all mortal. We have these weak bodies. Our bodies are really weak. It doesn't take much to kill any of us. When you really look at the mechanics involved with killing a human being, it ain't hard. We, most of us own something capable of killing a human being that ain't a gun. It's called a car. Capable of killing multiple human beings. We can trip and break our necks. People die in the bathroom, for God's sakes. So, I do think about it. I try not to think about it too much, and I don't want to end completely on it. So, I'm going to end with a different message for you guys today. We all will die, and let's say we die as a 90-year-old man or a 110-year-old man or whatever number makes you happy, and we're old and we're tired and we're ready to go on to the next level. However we see that, and... We die in the best way we can. We go to sleep feeling good and we just don't wake up. We die happy and contented. I still want you to think about something today. And it's about prepping and it's about the way you live your life. One word. Legacy. Legacy. Folks, especially the younger folks out there that are into the internet and Facebook and you have a blog and everything. Understand that someday your great-great-grandchildren are going to read and know everything about you. You, your ancestors speak to you through the ether. They're in your mind, they're in your soul, they're in your heart. If you're quiet and you're still, you can hear them say, be smart, be wise. Take care of yourself, take care of your family. Respect what we have handed down to you. But it's quiet and it's a whisper. And it requires interpretation. Your great-grandchildren, your children... Their children, their children's children, your great-great-grandchildren will be able to look back at you, Tom, Mary, Sam, Sue, Bob, whatever your name is. I'm speaking directly to each individual right now. Those people in your future will be able to look back and know you. Know you in ways you wish you could know your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents. Know what you thought, what you did during this time of change. 
They're going to know you intimately, as intimately as your children know you today. Because for the first time in history, we have a way to record these things. That's why I think everybody should have a blog. If it's just a blog that just talks about who and what you are and what you think, save this stuff. Pass it down. Because even if we fix everything, if we fix everything, if things come off so much better than we expect in the next hundred years, sooner or later, ignorance and apathy will rear its head and we'll have to do it again and again and again. And somebody's going to want to look back. Somebody's going to want to look back and they're going to want to know, what do you do when everything falls apart? What do you do when everything you've come to depend on begins to collapse around you? What do you do when everybody around you seems too stupid to understand it? Let your words speak to them. Tell them to be wise. Tell them to be smart. Tell them to preserve what they have. Tell them to think ahead. Don't make them look back into the ether the way you have to now. Leave a legacy for people. I'd like to believe that someday, 200 years from now, somebody somewhere is going to go, this guy's from 200 years ago. Listen to what he had to say. I'd like to believe that every single person that listens to this show that takes the time to document now, to save what's going on now, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're doing, that your great-grandchildren one day will look at it and go, man, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandmother or grandfather, they were smart. They left this for me. We all die. We all die. Whether tragically or happily in the end of our life. We can't live forever. I think we'd be miserable if we did. We all die. And we have a choice. We can leave a few memories and be a hyphen. On our stone, they'll put the day of our birth and the day we died, and in the middle, there's a hyphen. That hyphen can be you, or you can live a, leave a real legacy. If we're not preparing to leave a legacy, what are we preparing for? One day, you won't be here. Leave something special. Leave part of yourself behind. Trust me. Those people will care. Even if you think no one cares today, those people will care. And I'll ask you if there was this record that you could go access from all of, all of your great-grandparents right now. This is eight, eight great-grandparents. Is that how that works out? Right? If you had the complete information from what it was like to be there, how much would you pay if it was somewhere locked up and I said, I have it and I'll give it to you. Here's eight huge books. And in each book is a record of the life and learnings and wisdom of each of your eight grand great-grandparents. How much would you pay for that? Your great-grandchildren are going to see it that way. Don't make them pay for it. Don't make them guess. Leave a legacy behind. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. 
Yeah.